All right, hallelujah. So for the last two, three months, I've been doing this series uh, on the things that are important to Calvary Napa, kind of like if you want to be a member here at this church, we want you to know what we are about and what we would ask of you, what we would ask you to be about with us. And so what would the operative word be? What's the word I've been every week? Commitment. That's right. That's the word. You got it. And so last week we started talking about the church's commitment to, anybody remember? Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. It's definitely a biblical phrase, and we're going to continue on with that today. And so just a little bit of a recap from last week. So sound doctrine, what does that word even mean? Well, the word sound means healthy, means wholesome. If, if one were to say, I, I'm of sound mind, that means that I, I, am, I have all my faculties, I am thinking clearly, I am in health. And so sound doctrine simply means teaching. And so it's healthy, wholesome teaching. And it's something that we're commanded over and over in the Bible to be serious about. So Paul told Titus in Titus 1.9, he says, Holding fast the faithful word as you have been taught, that you might be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict it. So we have sound doctrine and we are to exhort one another accordingly. And if there are people who try to challenge or contradict sound doctrine, we are to basically correct them and encourage them in the right way. We're to do so with healthy, wholesome, biblical teaching. And we'll get into all of that today. Titus again is told, but as for you, he's the pastor, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Teach the things which accord sound doctrine. So that's, that's a very weighty and serious command that we pastors are charged with from the Word of God. We cannot play loose and fast with the Word of God. We can't just come up with silly, goofy shenanigans and tomfoolery and everything else in between. We have to be serious about the Word of God, what it says, what it means, what the authors meant when they wrote it, what was the authorial intention, what is it that the Holy Spirit was moving them to communicate, what are its implications, what are its applications, how do we obey it here and now in this time and place. We are to interact seriously with the Word of God. Sometimes you hear me use the word orthodox, not to be confused with like Eastern Orthodoxy, that's a whole other deal, but it simply means straight teaching. Ortho, orthodontist, right? The, the idea there would be straight, like teeth. Um, and so that's, that's opposed to twisted or warped. So unorthodox means unusual or different. So we don't want to be given to unorthodox teaching. I've heard it said, if it's new, run, don't walk. All right? And so if people come up with some kind of a new teaching that somehow for 2,000 years hasn't been anywhere in the church, that's something to be concerned about. And so we are, our goal is orthodoxy. Why? Because orthodoxy leads to, another big word I taught you last week, orthopraxy, which means right living. Right thinking leads to right living. You got me? That's why it's so serious, folks. That's why we have to take seriously sound doctrine, because it does affect the way that we live. If we have a twisted or skewed view of God and what God has commanded and what God loves and what God hates, if we've got that wrong, do you think that that will have negative implications in our walk? Absolutely it will. And so we've got to get it right. We can't afford to do otherwise. So we need to know the truth, stand on the truth, fight to preserve the truth. And I talked last week about being biblically literate. That is my heart's desire for our church, that we would be biblically literate men and women. We need to be crystal clear and unapologetic on the fundamentals of the faith. We have to be clear on this. I've heard it said that as it goes in the pulpit, so it goes in the church. What... what is brought forth from this pulpit right here has major impact and implication on the church. So it's important that what comes from this pulpit be the real deal, that it be clear, because uh, I've heard it said that if there is a mist in the pulpit, there's going to be a fog in the pews. Got to be clear. Have to be crystal clear. I've heard it said that the church will never rise higher than the pulpit. 
And so that's my commitment to you, is to come to you as best I can by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and sound doctrine to present to you the truth, the whole truth, the true truth. Amen? The true truth. Once and all delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. And so we're serious about that here at this church. That's one of the things, among other things, that we are dedicated to. And so with that, as a church dedicated to sound doctrine and affirming the Bible, uh, last week we talked about the church's commitment to be a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church. Remember that? I know it was a long time ago. It was a whole, a whole week ago. But that's as far as we made it, actually. I had five points, and that was point number one. And that was uh, as far as we made it. So we're going we're gonna to get all the way through this week. And so we're going to talk about the church's commitment to the authority of Scripture. We're going to talk about the church's commitment to being Christ and gospel-centered. Talk about the church's commitment to essential doctrine. So what are those things that we must embrace and fight for? We're going to talk about other important biblical affirmations, the, the uh, things that I wouldn't say are essential to the faith, but they are crucial biblically, especially with all that's going on in our culture. What does the Word of God say about these hot, hot issues? So we'll talk about that. And then lastly, a commitment to liberty and the non-essentials. What are the things that we can agree to disagree on? And I think we will be surprised to discover that it's, it's more than we think. Because we're ready to draw our sword and go to the death over things that really we're just not supposed to, right? And so we'll talk about that at the very end. So with that, let's take a look at point number one. And this is Calvary Napa's commitment to the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Uh, there's an there's a old phrase, sola scriptura, which means that it is the sole source of authority. The Word of God, that is where we go for God's revealed truth. It is authoritative in our lives. And I would say by extension, the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is the Lord of His church, and His commandments are found in the Word of God. And so we want to submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture and the commands of Christ. Commitment to the authority of Scripture. Now, last week we went in depth on our commitment to the Word of God. It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's sufficient, it's authoritative. We believe the Word of God and we teach the Word of God. And as such, amen, as such, we are committed to obeying the Word of God. That, that kind of it follows that if we're so serious about learning it, teaching it, believing it, that we ought to live it, we ought to obey it. In our own lives and in the governance of this church, the Word of God. And the Bible clearly teaches that obedience is a demonstration of our love and our sincerity. Jesus said in John chapter 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Jesus goes on to say, And the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. There it is. I mean, it, it can't be much more clear than that. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so we are a church that loves Jesus. It follows we're going to keep his commands. Even if they're very unpopular or even if they are offensive at times, we must. We can do no other. And so, as I said, even at the expense of offending people, which that is never our desire, we don't want to offend. I mean, the reality is Jesus is offensive, and so is the gospel. And Jesus even said, I came to bring a sword, knowing that the message of Christ was going to separate and divide. But the messengers should not be offensive, unnecessarily offensive. And so that's certainly always been my goal. Um, and so please understand, I'm not here to try to bring an offense, but I am here to speak the truth. And our church is serious about obeying the commands of Christ, even at the risk of, unfortunately, turning people off, you know, and that's not what we want to do, but it comes with it sometimes. Paul could not have said it any better in Galatians 1.10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You hear that? I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward. He said, is it my goal to please men or to please God? 
If it were my goal to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So sometimes we just have to recognize as a church, as Christians, that in the pursuit of obeying and pleasing Jesus as Lord of the church, people are going to be offended. And so at the end of the day, we're servants of Christ. And so I hope that in so doing, one of the takeaways from the people of this church is, wow, we really are a church that will do the hard things. We really are a church that will do what the Word of God says, even at the, at the risk of offending people, you know. Um, frankly, that's what Napa needs. Napa needs a church that says and does the hard things, right? That's what the world needs. The world needs Christians who actually do Christian things that follow the one that they profess to know. The world doesn't need a church that looks and sounds and acts like the world. And so, you know, the battle cry of our culture is to never offend. We know this, don't we? Don't ever offend or make anybody uncomfortable. That is, that is, the, that is the, the cry of the world in which we live and the culture that we live. And as I've said, it's not my desire to do so unnecessarily. But if we are obedient to Jesus... These things are just going to happen, but we're committed to it. We're committed. I need you to know that. We are committed to doing what the Word of God says. Not just believing it and teaching it, but obeying it. All right, second point. We are committed to being a Christ and gospel-centered church. A Christ and gospel-centered church. Now, as a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, it follows that we would make a big deal out of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said that the scriptures testify of him. That was what Jesus said. So whether it's prophecies in the Old Testament or types and shadows and pictures about Jesus in the Old Testament, Jesus is the central theme throughout the whole of scripture from cover to cover. Jesus is central. You're not going to find him on every single page, and I'm not going to say every single thing in the Bible is talking about Jesus, but you can find Christ and the redemptive theme woven throughout, intricately throughout the whole of Scripture. And so Jesus said that the Word of God was about Him. Now we live in an age, you know what exegesis is? That's when we go into the Word of God and we really try to understand what does it say? What did it mean to the original recipients? What was the author as being moved by the Holy Spirit trying to communicate? And how does that apply to us now today? and uh, understanding it in the historical, grammatical, literal context, that's exegesis. Well, we live in a time where the prevailing method of study is narcissus. That is, it's all about me. I don't know what the author was trying to say, but I can insert myself into it and make myself the hero of every single story in the Bible. We're good at that, and that is one of the most popular approaches in the pulpits today in America and around the world is we are constantly making ourselves the hero of every single story, and somehow Jesus is conspicuously absent, right? He's nowhere to be found, and that's all bad. We cannot fall into that trap. Jesus is the main thing. We are not to make the Scriptures a story about us and our lives and our trials and our victories over and over and over again. We cannot do that. Jesus is the champion, amen? amen. He is the champion of the Scriptures, he is truly Savior and King and Lord. He is the victor, and it is in Him that we have victory. And so Jesus also said that the Holy Spirit testified of Him. That is one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit. Many wonderful ministries that the Holy Spirit fulfills, but I would say one of the most glorious is to take the things of Jesus and to present them to us, to teach them to us. Jesus said that's what the Holy Spirit would do. And so I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I believe a church that is full of the Holy Spirit is a church that exalts Christ. It is a church that makes much of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we'll see um, worship songs and churches where it's all about the Holy Spirit, worshiping the Holy Spirit, seeking the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe that that's, a, that's biblically off. It's imbalanced. And so, Jesus at the center of it all. Now, that was Paul's determination. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Amen. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so we want to make much of Jesus. If we're not here to exalt Christ, what are we doing exactly? What are we here for? That's the reason that we gather on the first day of the week, Sunday. It's not the Christian Sabbath. I hope you understand that. It is the day that our Lord rose from the grave, and the church ever since then has gathered on this day to remember the resurrection and to exalt the risen King and to look forward to His return. And so making much of Jesus Christ. And we also endeavor to make much of the gospel. We want the gospel to be central. And I think if you've been here for any length of time, you know that. The gospel is central. We want to be Christocentric. That's a fancy way of saying Jesus at the center. But we also want to be gospel-centric. The gospel is a very big deal. Very big deal. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Did you catch that? I delivered to you as of first importance. This was the priority. When I come into town, I make a beeline to present this particular message to you. And what is it? It's this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There it is. That is the simple gospel message. And notice that it accords with the Scriptures. So Paul, based on the Scriptures, can say this is gospel truth and this is of first importance. Jesus died, He rose again from the grave on the third day. Now, the gospel is a simple message. It's good news. It's great news, in fact, because the bad news is horrifically bad. And that is that we were sinners, dead in our trespass and sin, rebels against a good and holy God, and accountable for our wickedness and transgression. Knowing that if we had to stand before a holy God, a good God, we were in big, big trouble. Really, the biggest problem for us is that God is good. You know that? Because we're not. We're not good. And so God, one day, is going to visit the, uh, the, the punishment against sin and iniquity against the people who have rejected him. You know? and, and such were all of us. That was us. That was all of us. And maybe some people in this room, even here today, are still in that place. And you know that if you had to stand before God today, if you were to die, that you would be most certainly destined to a place of, called hell, an eternal separation from God and punishment for every wrongdoing and transgression. But God, who is so kind and loving, paid the price, the ultimate price, in giving His own Son. At His own expense, God gave. At His own expense, He gave so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be made alive forevermore, born again. My brother's feeling me over here. You know, he hears this stuff, and he just gives praise to God. God deserves the glory. Amen? And so, that's the gospel, that God is in the world saving sinners. That Jesus lived, lived a life that none of us could live, a perfect life. He died the death and suffered the wrath of God that we all deserve. And he rose again from the grave three days later, victorious over sin and death. God accepted his sacrifice. It was good and it was pleasing. And so now as a result of that, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. If you trust Jesus for salvation, you bow the knee and you repent of your sin, he will forgive you, he will be Lord of your life be filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be born again. Brand new heart, brand new life, brand new goals, dreams, desires. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we want to always be about the gospel. We want to be about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. You know why? Because Christ-centered teaching that is divorced from the gospel can become just moralistic preaching. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against preaching for morality. I certainly don't want to preach for immorality, right? But it can just become a, we need to be like David, you know, or we need to be like Jesus. And so, go and sin no more. That's not good news. That's not good news. That's, oh, i got to measure up. I have to, I have to live a certain way. If that is divorced from the good news of the gospel that my sin has been forgiven and that I have the Holy Spirit and I am in right standing with God even on my worst day. On my worst day, I am in right standing with God and His love for me is in no way 
changed. He does not love me any less on my worst day. He doesn't love me anymore on my best day. In the gospel, I am fixed in God's love and that forevermore. And so it is from that place that I am empowered, I am propelled to live in obedience to Jesus Christ because He first loved me. Because He first loved us, we love Him. Amen? So that's why you have to have gospel-centered, Christ-centered preaching. There really has to be a balance for both. And we see that the Bible does employ this balance. I'll just give you an example. Um, I talked about giving recently. And Paul, when talking about giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he looks to Jesus as the extreme example of giving. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who were poor would be lifted out of our poverty and made rich. That's the gospel. And Paul employed the gospel to motivate the folks there in Corinth to give. We love because Jesus first loved. Because of the great love that we have received from God through His Son, God loved His own enemies. Jesus died for His own enemies, and we have received that kind of love. It empowers us to love. It's because of the gospel. We forgive because Jesus forgave. That's the gospel. We received infinite pardon. Pastor Bill, a few weeks back, the, uh, Pastor Bill Walden, the guy that planted this church, was at a men, we were at a men's retreat, and he was teaching on conflict resolution. And I was thinking, man, the gospel is the ultimate reason for conflict resolution. Jesus enacted the greatest conflict resolution that this world will have ever known when he reconciled sinners to a holy and just God. And so it is based on that that we seek to reconcile with people because we've been reconciled. Amen? And so it's the gospel. It's Christ. It's the gospel. It's what we have experienced because of the gospel. We're empowered by that to obey the commands of Christ. That's why we always want to preach Jesus and the gospel here. We want to be Christocentric and gospel-centric in our preaching. You know, another common mistake that people make is treating the gospel like it's just entry level. It's really just for unbelievers. The gospel's for unbelievers. So once you've heard the gospel, then uh, we can move on to deeper things. Let's get into the deep stuff now. A lot of, you know, a lot of Calvary chapels over the years, I feel like, have fallen into that that trap. And so we got to be careful about that because we make a big deal about teaching through the whole Bible, book by book, verse by verse, and you can have sermon after sermon after sermon and there's no gospel anywhere. Why? Because, well, everybody already knows the Lord. Everybody is assumed. You know, you get to a point where you kind of know everybody in the room and you think, okay, you know, no need to get into the gospel here. Everybody's saved, right? And so big mistake, big mistake. You know, the gospel is not just entry level. Sometimes we treat the gospel like it's old news. The gospel will never be old news. The gospel is the best news. It is the greatest news. And uh, we need to always see it as such. You know, that was Paul. That was Paul's main thing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He said, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He goes on to say, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul said, it's all about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. And this idea of ashamed is kind of like, I will never be let down by it. You know, sometimes you put your trust in something or someone and then it falters and you're embarrassed that you trusted that person or whatever it may be. Paul said, never so with the gospel. I'll never be ashamed for having trusted the gospel. For in it, the power of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. And so the gospel, it communicates so much to us. It reminds us of who we were outside of Christ and our desperate need for a loving Savior. It tells us so much about God. God is holy it tells us at the same time that God is merciful and kind and that God is a benevolent and a generous and a gracious God. It sets us free. It reminds us that the work is done. It's been accomplished in Christ. So we rest in Him and we serve from a place of done. We do because it's already been done. You understand that? 
We don't do so that it will be done. We don't do so that we can be in God's good graces. We are in. We are in through the gospel. And so Paul said, man, that's what it's all about. We need to hear the gospel all the time. All the time. That's why in my life group, uh, we meet on Monday nights. Every week, we share the gospel and we give someone else a chance to share it. So we just, week by week, we'll pick someone, hey, uh, you share the gospel. And I love it, man, because people will share it in their own, their own words, their own experiences, their own vocabulary. And it's just so glorious. I just love to hear the gospel preached every week. I just love to hear Christ preached. If you're a believer, you re- that resonates with you. you got the Spirit of God in you. And the Spirit delights in the Son. The Spirit delights to make much of Jesus. And when we hear the gospel preached, it blesses us. It blesses us. to say something, and uh, I don't want to forget it before I move on about the gospel. It'll come back to me in a minute. Let me try to remind myself here. Oh, well, I guess it was not to be. Let's move on. Number three, our commitment to Christian essentials. Our commitment to Christian essentials. I'd like to share a quote with you. It says, In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. You ever heard that before? I really like that. There are certain things that we have to unite around. We cannot agree to disagree about those things. Those are the core, central, foundational principles of Christianity. But then there are things that aren't necessarily... uh, conducive to matters of salvation and so uh, we can have some disagreement on those things and still have fellowship and those we need to have liberty that's freedom but in either case we must have charity and that's an old school way of saying love there must be love and so that's that's a great simple little pithy statement that i think is very helpful for us if we can keep that in our minds Essentials in the unity, uh, unity in the essentials, liberty in non-essentials, charity in all things. And so the things I'm going to talk about here in a moment, I'm not suggesting that you have to know all of these things to be saved. Be real careful when I say that. I don't want to say you must understand and believe all of these things because I know that when I came to faith in Christ, I, I understood very little, very little. I knew that I had wrecked my life and that I was not capable of putting it back together and leading my life in any kind of productive, constructive way, and that I believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that He died and rose again and that I was to t- repent of my sin and trust Him and that the Bible gives me some assurance that He would lead my life. And I just said, Lord, I'll give you my life. I'll follow you. And, uh, and that's what happened, and that was where it started. And then began the journey of learning all of these glorious truths. And as you learn these things, it deepens your love and your appreciation for the Savior. Amen? That's the journey of Christianity. Worship is theology on fire. Theology on fire. And as I, as I say that, let me just say at this point, I've been talking the last couple weeks about, you know, Stuff that concerns me, particular authors and Bible teachers that are pretty popular in the church. And, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I'm not convinced that the horse is dead. And so I'm real tempted to beat the horse some more. Um, but uh, I won't go there. I keep getting pushback. People keep pushing back on me. And, and I'm just, uh, that's why I kind of want to keep pushing back. We just keep pushing. But uh, let me say this, man. Theology is so, is so important. Good, sound doctrine. It's so important. It's important for the men of the church. It's important for the women of the church. And I want to challenge all of us to take more seriously studying doctrine. You know, there's just a lot of silly stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff that we really shouldn't be wasting time and energy taking in. You know, we want to go, go deep. Amen? We want to go deep into true truth. So I want to just share with you a resource. There are several of, uh, different ones. Discovering the Glorious Gospel. This is a workbook that I give to the Bridge guys. This is um, incredible. And so, um, Paul Washer, there are five or six of these kinds of books. There's another one called Knowing the Living God. 
as theology proper, deals with the character, the nature, the attributes of God. And man, get ready to have your mind blown. I mean, that, that's where it's at. And so I want to encourage you, men and women alike, to get into some of this stuff. So look this up. I don't see anybody writing it down, so you must have good memories because I am trusting, okay, good, because I'm trusting that you are going to do this. You're going you're gonna to listen to your pastor's guidance, and you're going to go online and order a couple of these. I would encourage you, Discovering the Glorious Gospel, this deals with the work of Jesus. Um, Christology, you know, um, I mean, it really goes in depth, and it's just something you can do daily, and you will learn so much, and this will, there is no way this will not enrich your love and appreciation for sound doctrine regarding the person and the works of Jesus, and that was what I was going to say a moment ago. Thank you, Jesus. He deserves to be glorified every time we can get together and glorify him over the gospel, over what he suffered. I mean, that's impressive, man. The accomplishments of Christ, the, the condescension of Christ, going from the highest place to the lowest place, sinless perfection, dying that horrific death, conquering the grave, rising on our behalf, ascending to the Father and seat, seated at the right hand, even now inter, interceding on our behalf as a faithful, compassionate high priest. That's why I feel like the gospel should be proclaimed every single week because after he accomplished something like that, if we have some kind of an achievement in our life, some kind of an accomplishment, we kind of don't want to just you know, acknowledge it one time and then forget about it immediately, do we? We want to like relish in that, bring it up again and again, remember that, think about it, it's good. You know, uh, that was a big deal. Man, how much more Jesus and his accomplishments, who he is and what he's accomplished. That's why we want to make a big deal about that every single time we gather because he really is the chief end of it all. He's the chief goal of it all in our gatherings. And so I would encourage you, pick this up or the other one, uh, knowing the living God. Man, I'm just telling you, you will be so blessed. You will not regret it. And so with that... Kind of continuing on, why these things are so important and why we have to take such a serious stand on them is because in the early 20th century, there was the rise of what is called theological liberalism. And so what it was basically was the dispelling all the miracles from the Bible and doing away with foundational principles that make up Christian orthodoxy. And um, there's a, a quote, I don't know much about this guy, Richard Niebuhr, as I understand it. I don't think he's, you know, a, uh, a champion of, of fundamentalism or anything. But even he recognized that when you start to take all of the main things out of Christianity, when you start to just pull out the core tenets, he says this, you end up with a God without wrath who brought men and women without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I mean, what are you left with? What are you left with when you start taking it all apart? That's why we can't do that. That is why Jude said this in chapter 1, verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly. That is fight. Fight earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, the core principle beliefs, foundational doctrines that make up the Christian faith. We all have a responsibility and an obligation to contend earnestly for those, right? And so we need to know what they are, and we need to embrace those and Seek to do our part to preserve those truths from generation to generation. So let's just walk through this list. So what I've already talked about is the inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. Talked about that last week, so I don't need to go deeply into that. But we affirm that. We affirm all of those. We live in a time where much of popular evangelicalism, they're not affirming these things so much anymore. And so it's happening in our day, brothers and sisters. We can't afford... To, uh, to play loose and fast with that. That's the foundation. It's the sole source of truth and revelation. The Trinity. We are Trinitarian. We believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, having always existed eternally as 
one God and three persons. Now, it's not my goal to defend and teach all of these things. I just want you to understand what we embrace. We are not tritheists. We don't believe in multi, uh, you know, three gods, one God, in essence, three persons distinctly. The Father did not die on the cross. Some people have taught that. That's called patropassionism. The Father suffered on the cross. We're not modalists. That is that the Father became the Son and then became the Spirit. And then at any given time goes back and forth between the three. And so um, we are not that either. And that's popular in Pentecostalism. A lot of uh, mainline Pentecostal denominations, United Pentecostals, they don't believe in, in the Trinity. They are oneness, um, oneness theology. And so uh, we are Trinitarian. And I could really go into why that is so important, but today I will keep moving. The deity of Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. A lot of people in our day say he was a good man, he was a prophet, good teacher. Or they may say he was a God, he was one among many gods. He was created by God, so he's not of the same essence of God. He's not co-equal or co-eternal with God, but he is a lesser being type God. That's all bad. Uh, So we affirm the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, that the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, became man, took on flesh, took on a human nature through a virgin birth. And so the incarnation of Christ. So we affirm the humanity of Christ, that he was truly God and truly man. He had to be in order to represent mankind And for there to be a flesh and blood sacrifice on our behalf, he had to be. Because there were false doctrines all the way back to the beginning of the church that said that Jesus was like a phantom being. He was not flesh and blood. That's why John says in in 1 John, anyone who does not confess Christ as coming in the flesh, they're not of God. Okay, And so we affirm that Jesus is both truly God and truly human, truly man. That is the dual nature of Christ or hypostatic union. We affirm the impeccability of Christ. He was perfect in all his ways. Perfect in all his ways. You know, there was a recent kind of woke, I hesitate to even use the word pastor or preacher. And uh, he tried to say Jesus was racist. And uh, the Syrophoenician woman, you know the story, she pushed back on him. And he realized the error of his way and he repented of his racism. And uh, blasphemy, blasphemy. Jesus is perfect, sinlessly perfect. He died for peoples from every tribe, nation, and tongue. There is only one race, the human race, of which we have all descended. And so uh, there is no racism in the Son of Man. And so uh, the impeccability, not only did he not sin, he could not sin because he was God in the flesh. We believe and affirm that God is a God of wrath and judgment. He is a God of wrath and judgment. People don't like that in this day and age. That's an, that's an offensive thing, but it is what the Bible clearly teaches, which is what necess- necessitated the next thing that we affirm, and that is the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. He, he died on the sin as a penalty. It was the penalty. It was God's wrath against his own son because of our sin. Okay, so he died to take God's wrath because of our sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. And it was only the sacrifice of the Son of God that could appease the wrath of God. Because God is infinite, eternal, and his holiness and his justice is infinite and eternal. And so it could only be the sacrifice of infinite worth and value that could pay such a price. That's why we would spend all of eternity paying for our sins against an infinitely holy God. So it had to be the sacrifice of the sinless, perfect Son who died in our place. We affirm the bodily resurrection. He really did rise from the grave. He didn't just lay in the tomb, in the cold tomb for a few days. He didn't actually die, but then he resuscitated a few days later. You know, there's all kinds of wonky teaching out there about how this could have or possibly work. No, we believe he really died. He really laid down his life. He breathed his last, and then he rose again three days later, glorified. We believe that Christ really is going to return. 
He's coming back. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead and to receive His church. We affirm that salvation is by grace through faith. We are only saved by the grace of God. It is never going to be because of our works. And it happens through faith, believing in Jesus Christ as God's payment for us. So we, we would, I would say in addition to that, we believe in justification by faith. Justified. That is a legal declaration. That is like the, the gavel being slammed and saying, declared innocent. Innocent. We don't feel innocent. We may not look very innocent because we're not. But God says, because of my son and what he has accomplished on your behalf, and you are found in him, your trespass, your penalty has been laid on him. I am declaring you innocent. We believe that we are justified by faith, and we are given a righteousness that is not our own. It's called an alien righteousness, is what Martin Luther called it. It's from outside of us. And so justification by faith. We believe in the exclusivity of Christ. That's another one that people get upset about, but it's what Jesus said. No one can come to the Father except through him. And then Peter affirmed that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, then let it be, but your will be done. What was that cup? It was the cup of God's wrath. Jesus had to drink it. There was no other way. If there was some other way, if Allah could save, then Jesus would not have had to go to the cross. You understand? If we could reach some higher enlightenment through Buddha or whatever, Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. But there was salvation in no other name. If we could, in and of ourselves, be good enough and do more good than bad, as though that could even work, Jesus wouldn't have had to have gone to the cross. But he had to go. Right? And so we believe in the exclusivity of Christ. We believe in the reality of heaven and hell. The Bible is clear on that. Everybody loves heaven. They just don't want to hear anything about hell, right? Problem is, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. It's a very real place. And so Jesus warned, warned of the reality of that place. We believe in the necessity of a holy life. If you say you're a Christian, if you name the name of Christ, there ought to be some resemblance of Jesus. And so we don't believe... We don't, we don't embrace easy believism here, or, or sloppy grace, cheap grace. We believe that if you have named the name of Christ and you have his Holy Spirit, then you will have a holy life. We struggle. We're going to always struggle, for sure. It's a continual repentance and turning, repentance and turning, you know, confessing our sins. That is the, the Christian life. But we are striving towards and aiming for a holy life. And we can because we have the Holy Spirit of God. Amen? And then lastly, I would say the necessity of the body of Christ. People who say, I don't need the church, that concerns me. That concerns me because Jesus loves his church. Jesus died for his church. And then for someone to name the name of Christ and say, I don't care about the church. I don't love the church. I don't need the church. That's a problem. That's a real problem. That's not what the Lord of the church would say. And so, um, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. That's a problem. And so, we affirm the necessity of being connected to the body of Christ. I'm sure there are probably others, but I'll just stick with that. That's, that's, that's uh, A through P right there. I was thinking, I wonder if I could make it all the way to Z. But uh, the, those, are, those are, you know, that's fundamental. That's the fundamentals of the faith. We embrace those. We affirm those. Uh, we'll, we'll go to the death over those things. You know what I mean? And so, just know that if you want to be a member of Calvary Chapel, Calvary Napa, then that's, those are the things that we will take very seriously. You will hear preached boldly and unapologetically the things we're going to try to encourage and teach uh, and challenge one another in those things. And we will not compromise on those things. Okay? All right. So, moving on. Commitment to vital biblical stances. This one will move a little more quickly. Um, the next two, actually. Three. Sorry. Um, so these are just some things that we affirm. These are hot topics in the culture. And uh, we affirm all the above essentials, but we also uh, affirm some of these other things as accompanying biblical orthodoxy. Not required for salvation, but crucial for the church. How's that? 
And so uh, one is God's design for marriage. You know, one of the things Christians are known for, what they're against, and that's unfortunate because what we should really be known for is what we are for. And don't get me wrong, when we're known for what we are for, it will also demonstrate what we're against. And, but what we are ultimately for is God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, God instituted that in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, and it was reaffirmed by Paul and by Jesus in the New Testament. I should say by Jesus and then Paul in the New Testament. And so we reject any biblical aberrant view of sexuality. We reject, you know, fornication. We would reject, um, you know, any kind of sexual immorality, adultery. But we do also reject homosexuality, transgenderism, any, any of those kinds of things. Anything that, anything that, um, that goes against God's original design that he said was good, then we cannot, we cannot endorse that, co-sign on that in any way so that that's okay. I realize it's a real issue in our culture and that people really do struggle with those things deeply, and I don't mean to, under, you know, to minimize the struggle. I know it's real. I know it's real. And so um, I, I say this with all grace, but God's Word is clear on these matters, and He is good, and He will give us the grace and the strength to be able to be obedient to these things, even if it is a struggle for any person in this room particularly. You know what I mean? And so, but that's, that's something that we as a church have to stand on. Another one is complementarianism. We believe in, uh, in distinct roles for men and women in the church. Men are pastors. The Bible's crystal clear on that. We don't have women pastors. Now, this doesn't in any way mean that women are subservient to men or inferior. That's why I've been calling our women to deeper places with theology because I want our men and women, they should be they should be getting after it, one and the same, you know. I wouldn't prescribe one kind of theology for men and then another for women, right? I'll say this all across the board. I, I am sorry, women. I know there's no flowers on this. That kind of looks like a flower. So maybe, I don't know if that helps. But uh, I'm kidding. But you know what I mean? And so, but the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. And in the homes, and I know godly women desire their husbands to man up, to step up, and to lead well, to be masculine, men. We, that we affirm masculinity, biblical masculinity. I'm about that, and I want our men to rise to that because our women and the children need that. Amen? They need that. I know our women ain't looking for no pansy, sissified, woke culture, you know, wimps, right? We got to man up, man up. And so we're serious about that here, you know. Um, pro, we are pro-life. I don't talk about this a whole lot from the pulpit because I recognize that more times than not, there's not going to be women in our church who uh, are thinking about having an abortion, but we probably have several who have had abortions. And so I understand that that comes with deep, deep scars and, and hurt and healing needs to happen there. And so I just, uh, I get concerned. I had a, a guest teacher come in one time. I didn't know the guy very well, but he just, in some random uh, turn in his sermon, started railing against um, abortion. And I know a young lady in the church had come up and said, wow, that was an angle I had never considered for. Now I've considered before. Now I feel even, you know, even better, you know what I mean, and and so I, I want to be sensitive to that kind of stuff. So we we have to say that you know um, the pro-choice thing, abortion, it's 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 wrong, it's sinful. We reject that, and we want to encourage uh, women to always make the to choose life, right? Because we believe in the inherent, intrinsic worth and value of uh, anyone that's created in God's image, which is preborn children. But I try to I try to be careful. Uh, to not bring a spirit of condemnation. Um, you know what I mean? You understand where I'm coming from here? You with me? Okay. And so that's important. And as I've already said, if you hadn't picked up on it, we reject any kind of wokeism. We believe that there's one race, the human race, all fallen in Adam, all in need of the gospel. And so um, that's, that's what we're about. And so um, point number five, we have a commitment to doing church simply. Um, 
the primitive church. I like that phrase. Just emphasizing the ordinary means of grace. Uh, and, and so I just want to walk through some of the things that are important to us. Gathering is God's people around God's Word. I think if you've been here for any length of time, you kind of know that that's what we're about. God's Word. In larger settings, smaller settings, uh, we, we want to glorify Christ through congregational singing and gospel proclamation. I love that our people have been singing, more, uh, have been singing louder lately. And I want to encourage that because it's, I, I use the word congregational singing on purpose because that's, that's really what, what this is. We talk about worship, and what we, what we usually mean is, is we want to feel good, and so we want the music to make us feel a certain kind of way. And that's backwards. We come to exalt the name of Jesus. Now, if you know Jesus and you love Jesus, you will exalt Jesus, and it will make you feel some kind of way. It should, it should lift you. It should be a blessing, no doubt. And I think when things are done with excellence, music moves us. I recognize that. Music can distract us. It can really, you know, throw things off. So we want things to be done with excellence and edification. But the goal is to glorify Christ and to worship God and to do it congregationally. So more than the sound coming from the stage, I'm concerned about the sound coming from the, from the congregation. Amen? Can I get a collective amen? Amen. 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 So I'm glad that I've been hearing louder singing. He is worthy of our loudest praise. He is worthy of our loudest praise. And I know I can't sing worth a dang. And I'm back there. I feel bad for my wife. And, uh, you know, she wants to, like, you know, snuggle and cuddle while we're singing. And I'm just right in her ear. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, you know sorry. But, you know, he's worthy of our loudest praise. Amen? And so uh, congregational singing, we're, we're serious about that. And glorifying Christ through gospel proclamation, building one another up in the most holy faith through sound doctrine, through using our gifts, through church discipline even, but building one another up, equipping saints for the work of the ministry. The goal here is for us to grow in our gifts and our abilities so that we can all serve in ministry with excellence, to give generously to the needs of the saints and the work of God, to train pastors for the work of ministry. I feel like the church is really the training grounds for pastors. It, just, it is. Seminary is good and helpful, but seminary doesn't make pastors. Churches make pastors. And so I'm serious about that here. And we've got a lot of young aspiring pastors in this church, which I'm excited about. If observing the ordinances given by the Lord, the Lord's Supper and baptism this is something that we regularly do as the church of Christ and evangelizing and supporting missions, just something that we're getting better at, I believe, all the time, and I definitely want to uh, excel in missions, which necessitates giving. And so, you know, these are the things that, that we're committed to. The essentials of the faith, those other affirmations regarding cultural issues going on, um, the, the simplicity of the primitive church, and all of, we have a pretty stripped-down service. There's not a lot of, uh, you know... I visited a church one time in uh, Montana, and it was it was it was a trip, man. Some of the things that that they that they did, kind of, I don't know. They had some interesting, like the worship team was coming up on stage, and they had music playing through the speakers, and they had these visuals on the screen, and then a countdown, and then all of a sudden, the music that was playing on the screen, the band like just picked up, started playing instantly, and it switched from one to the other, and it like threw me off, and I was like, whoa, man, that's, that was a trip, and that just, I don't know, it was like sensory overload, and then when, when it was uh, time for the, the campus pastor to come up after the worship was over, it was like this. Hey, guys, how are we doing here today? Yeah! And I was like, whoa, okay, all right. Guess what time it is? And everyone's like, giving time! And I was like, dang, okay, all right. Well, you know, that's just not really our style. You know, we're, we're kind of laid back. And so stripped down, you know, maybe I could do, we could use a little more excitement, I guess, but that's just not really my, uh, my, my stilo. You know, it's not really my style, so. All right, well, last thing, we'll, we'll close with this. <clears throat> Our commitment to liberty in the non-essentials. Commitment to liberty in the non-essentials. Now, let me just say, 
people don't treat these like non-essentials. People are ready to go, go, go down to, you know, the grave over these things. And so even as I talk about these things, I recognize that this is hot topics for Christians in the church. And I just want to say these are non-essentials. <clears throat> so if you are a mature Christian, you can afford to be gracious with each other over these things. And if you're a, a member of Calvary, I want you to know, because people will often say, what do we believe or what do, what do we have to believe in these things? And in these things, I'm going to say there is <clears throat> grace to believe either side of the coin, and you can be a member at this church. So one that's not as big of a deal anymore is eschatology. There was a time when a lot of people treated the end times, rapture, you know, mid-trib, post-trib, all of that. That may, that may be, mean nothing to you at all. Um, those things aren't really so much of an issue anymore, and I, I certainly am not going to make those things an issue. I just Jesus is coming back, amen? He's coming back. But I would say two of the biggest ones, one are sign gifts. By that I mean prophecies, miracles, speaking in tongues, um, you know, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. You're going to hear those are referred to as confirmatory gifts or sign gifts or miraculous gifts as opposed to uh, more service-based gifts like giving or mercy or teaching. You know, there's kind of different categories of gifts. Um, there's a big debate as to whether those gifts, the miraculous sign gifts, still exist in the church today or do they cease with the apostles. And so I just want to say I want our church to be a place where we do have people in the church who have differing views on these things, and that is good with me. I'm good with that. And so I want us to be a church where we can have unity and we can be okay with allowing people to have different convictions in these areas. Yeah? Another big one, and I'll kind of close with this, is uh, God's sovereignty versus man's uh, freedom. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a big one. That's a, that's a very big one, in fact. But, you know, we got folks in this church who have different uh, views on this. And, and, you know, so some people really want to veer towards a side where God is absolutely in control of all things, especially salvation. God elects, God predestines, God chooses, he saves, God keeps people to the very end. And then you've got the other side where they would say, no, it's, it's definitely more of a cooperative effort, and um, God does reach out, but man has to respond, and he doesn't have to respond, and he very well may not respond, um, and it's up to his own free will. And so the debate goes back and forth, back and forth, and we have, even on our elder board, we have uh, pastors who differ on these things, and that is okay, you know? And I want that to be okay in our church. I know we have people who differ on, you know, they really want to emphasize and stress God's sovereignty. They have others who really want to stress and emphasize man's free will. Some who are right in the middle and say it's both, and I don't know how that works. <clears throat> I just know that for me, I'm always going to emphasize God's sovereignty uh, because, man, I, I, I just think that if it were up to me, I'd be in big trouble. I just think that if it were up to me, I already know where I would be, and I wouldn't be here today. And so I, I look, I see God as not so much reactive, or His plan of redemption is not subservient to, uh, to man, whether man's going to comply or not. God is a God who saves, amen? And God is free to save, and our God is in heaven, and He does whatever He wants to do, and not even we can stop that. And we pray like that, don't we? God, move on my English teacher to give me favorable grades. Or God, save my loved one. Or, you know, God, do this or do that. If he's not sovereign, if he doesn't have the ability to, uh, to um, intervene in the free will of men, then why do we pray? You know? And so, anyways, um, I say that because you guys already know that. You've heard me preach time and time again for the sovereignty of God. We sing about the sovereignty of God and um, I think that God is very glorified because God is supreme. Amen? He, he is preeminent in all things. He does what he wants. And why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Amen? So that's what we're about here, folks. That's it in a nutshell. I hope that was inform informative. And here in probably just a couple of weeks, we're going to go ahead and kind of do the official membership. If you want to be a member of this church, we'll have you take a card out of the chair and, and say, sign me up and put it in the, the offering slot back there. We'll have to come up with a better 
name for it than that, but um, at any rate, and then we'll, uh, we'll contact you and walk you through the membership process, you know, and so um, I hope that you've learned a lot over the last, you know, few months about what we're, what we are uh, serious about here as a church, you know, and what we want you guys to be serious about. Amen.